This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Home Gadget Geek show number 520, recorded on January 13th, 2022. Home Gadget Geeks, we cover all the favorite tech gadgets that find their way into your home. News, reviews, product updates, and conversation, all for the average tech guy. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here, Mike, in Bellevue, where you couldn't tell for the last three days that tomorrow we have a, we have winter storm warnings. It's been like 50, and then all of a sudden, I don't know what they're expecting, not three, four, five inches on it. Have you heard? I think it's three to six is okay. the latest update for us. Yeah, I know they're it's spraying. The supposedly more now. to the east now. It's supposed to Good. be. We were going to be heavier, and now it's more to the east. Of That's us. always the way it is. They always tease yeah. us, and then they're like, you know, oh, just kidding. So, anyways, I get well, more scared when they underestimate yeah. because every time they tell us yeah. it's going to be a blizzard, we get a dusting. But it's usually the small ones where it's like, oh yeah, it shifted. Now we did get a blizzard. The cold weather we had, I think, shifted to the east coast. Christian, uh, you guys, a little chilly there. And Christian Johnson's with us tonight. A little chilly there in the uh, the DC area. Yeah, it got down to like eighteen uh, yesterday yeah. and through this morning, and I think we're also going to be seeing some snow this weekend. So we're uh, we're continuing winter trends here. Yeah, well, we've got warm weather ahead of that. I, you know, you guys get it a couple of days after we do. We got so we'll send you a little warm weather, and then it'll get cold again. But it's just uh, uh, Wednesday night. No, Tuesday night. I went out and did a fire in the back, like. <laughs> It was like it was fifty degrees, and I was like, "Holy cow!" Well, of course, uh, we got Christian Johnson. We'll post some great show notes uh, out at theaverageguy.tv. Big thanks to Aaron Lawrence who uh, who stepped in. Mike had to step out last week, and Aaron came in, and we just really that we just got about an hour with her, and she just nailed the content in about mm-hmm. fifty minutes. And so, big thanks to Aaron for doing that as well. Mike, everything everything's good on your end as far as. <laughs> Yeah, it was a car issue. I needed to go uh, bring the car back home and try and see if we could get it to start back up. So we, we got it home and we got everything figured out. And uh, yeah, and then, and, then, and then this week my car decided to act up. It's just uh, been a car week for no. us, but yeah, everything's it's all good. It's winter time. It's the I cold weather. I lost the battery it, too. I, I lost the battery. Yeah, it's just the cold. It just it just knocks that. Uh, my heat just, shield in the bottom no. of my Jeep decided to fall off, but no. it didn't decide to fall off. It decided to hold on by a thread and rattle, and I didn't know what was rattling. <laughs> it was what drove me nuts for like four days. I'm like, this doesn't sound good. Finally got under there, and it, it was just hanging on by a thread. Christian, you got a, you guys have a Jeep, right, too? How's that getting? Is that getting you through the snow and such? Yeah, it's great. We have the uh, Rubicon 2016 in that uh, that lime green color that they don't oh, make nice. anymore. They make hyper green, but they don't make, uh, or maybe it's the other way around. We have hyper green and they have a weird lime green, but uh, yeah, rock solid. Um, That's a sweet ride. I rode, I rode in that when I yeah. was out there a couple of years ago. Yeah. year ago, I guess now it's just year a, a year, yeah. year and some change and uh, uh, um, super cool. Um, a reminder, uh, we get started one. We've been doing these. We've been doing or premiering the video on YouTube out of my YouTube account. So go to the average guy TV slash YouTube subscribe. And on Saturdays at noon central, we replay this gives me a chance to jump in the chat room without having to be running the show at the same time. And some for some folks who can't make it on Thursday, it's a great opportunity to have that same kind of chat experience on Saturdays and finally we're getting kind of a different crowd, which is kind of cool. You can join us just cause you're here now. Doesn't mean you can't join us on Saturdays or if you just a regular podcast listener, a couple hundred of you guys do that. Join us on Saturdays, the average guy.tv slash YouTube subscribe. So you'll get the notification that way you don't forget. And we'll continue to do that. And then 
two weeks from now on the 27th, Mike and I are going to take the post show to discord. So you're going to yes. want to be here for that little discord audio. Everybody can jump in and kind of have a chat. We're going to give it a try, maybe shoot for the last Thursday of the month and give those, uh, give those a try. So if you want to join us, uh, come out live on the 27th, January 27th, 2022. And if you're listening to this after the fact, we missed you. Sorry about that. Christian Johnson is hanging out with us tonight. Christian, of course, a longtime host from, if you don't, if you're new to Home Gadget Geeks, Christian kind of helped me kick this whole thing off like 10 plus years ago. Christian, is it a little weird to be back? I mean, we had you back in the fall, but when you come back to Home Gadget Geeks, is it a little weird coming back or does it settle right in? It's never weird, but it feels like a kid I never had that left for college and, you know, <laughs> kind of comes back to see the parents once once every five years. So. Uh, yeah, there's maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit of that going on. It's always good to good to catch up. Let's do a little catch up on Maple Grove Partners. You know, Maple Grove Partners kind of supports sponsors, hosts here at, uh, you know, on Home Gadget Geeks and everything we do for the Average Guy TV. We've kind of, Christian's kind of I want to say built it around me or maybe in spite of me, uh, Maple Grove Partners for for the work what we do. Any any updates you want to share going on at Maple Grove Partners as far as hosting goes or or work on that? Yeah, we're we're having a ton of fun. Um and and really focused around gym is still to this day our our model customer use case. So folks that need to get up and running on a LAMP stack equivalent application and do podcasts, community hosting, et cetera. Uh, we operate out of two locations on the East Coast. We're still doing failover. So we have live failover and power redundancy implemented now. And uh, we've been getting more um, servers built into racks and, and getting hardware built out. So uh, we're staying ahead of the demand curve. Um, it's still plans as cheap as $10. Uh, we haven't let inflation change that at all. Um, I said that last we, week. Inflation-proof plans. Yep, we haven't let um, uh, PayPal charge rates or anything else change it. It's ten dollars uh, for for great service. You get to deal with you know me and my kindred. Um, we try to make it easy and fun and friendly, um, not the one eight hundred. And you you have someone who's helping you make sure your content's safe. Like we don't we don't really do the content development side. That's on you to bring your community and your content. But we make sure it's running, it's optimized, it's working well. And um, it's not like your typical shared hosting provider where that 10 bucks a month drops you on a node oversubscribed with thousands of people. And if it goes out, like it's a painful 1-800 call, um, we're, we're basically uh, over provisioning resources to the extent that we can for customers, putting them on um, uh, gigabit and, and soon multi-gigabit fiber plans uh, for their upstream and downstream into their server and their, and their SFTP services. And, uh, we're making it a fun place to drop your audio files and build a community. So it's, it's, it's pretty great. How are you guys, um, acquiring hardware? I mean, I know you were always looking for great deals and yeah, buying I'm, stuff that made sense. You were finding things that would work well that maybe other people missed out on. How, yeah. are, you, how are you acquiring? That's still like one of the magic tenants of Maple Grove is that um, most people think they have to buy the greatest and latest to get the speed of what people notionally want to call Web 3.0 now. And really, um, most of the web applications out there, we're seeing some really interesting trends. Uh, one is that PHP and these other compiled languages and interpretive languages that are powering web services just generically on the Internet 
they continue to get more efficient. So you can do more with the same amount of hardware. That's one trend that's just continuing to accelerate. We're seeing it not only in the languages getting more efficient, but also the databases. So, you know, MySQL 5 versus MySQL 8 on the same hardware benchmarked, the transactions per second are totally different between the two. Um, So that's one trend that's giving a lot of overhead. Um, The second trend is that typically... um, if you buy hardware in the three to four years after it's like brand shiny new, it is just that right balance of having the newer generation hardware features uh, without compromising on performance, but also not paying top dollar. Um, so in the early days of Maple Grove, where we were scrounging these huge upright workstations that were kind of like all in one towers, and we were stuffing, you know, 128 gigs of DDR2 RAM it was back then, can you believe it or not? Uh, and had these huge heat sinks on it and building hypervisors. Like it's, we've gotten away from that. Uh, we've moved more towards uh, rack mount and we've moved towards uh, PowerEdge as a, as a platform to start standardizing around and buying in that, like I said, that four year horizon. So still DDR4 stuff. Um, you don't need super fast clock speeds for DDR4 RAM to have a fast experience. Um, Most of the stuff that really has seen an impact on web performance is much more about disks. So invest in the M2s, invest in the, you know, the the flash uh, memory for for disks, Um, but don't go crazy on clock speeds and CPU because Quite honestly, LAMP stacks, like I said, they just keep getting more efficient. So unless you've written some crazy, slow, and inefficient MySQL query that's part of your web application, chances are you don't need a crazy uh, hardware platform to run it. Um, and then really just making the software services such that you get the high availability, right? So power outages or interruption, uh, fiber peering or interruption, and basically... Uh, having your content automatically replicated and synchronized between uh, at least two sites at a given time so that if if a site that traffic is being hosted out of fails, your content is automatically weighed away and, and started to be hosted out of the other zone. So we've tried both active-active as well as active-hot-spare, and we're kind of happy right now in the active-hot-spare model. It takes about on average 60 seconds for DNS to flip over. We're using some low TTL records and some premium DNS services to have uh, 29 Anycast servers around the globe. So DNS resolution to Maple Grove hosted services is quite fast while your content stays hosted uh, privately and locally on Maple Grove hardware. It, it was great right. being in your house and using the Maple Grove <laughs> network while I was there. That was pretty great. Mike, do you have a question? Well, I'll just ask the question. Lamp stack. Yeah, what's a lamp stack? Linux, um, Linux, PHP, MySQL. Um, so it, it's really just saying, you know, the fundamental things you need to run WordPress are those three things. You need a Linux operating got it. system. It's got to have a PHP processor on it, and you got to reach out to a MySQL database or equivalent. Okay, Christian. What about you know we we come out of the home server space, right? Of from long ago, and what about you know, someone who's thinking of, they still want to keep some storage. Uh, we've been talking a lot of Unraid here over the last, I mean, uh, over the last year or so. Mike, we've shown up in the Unraid newsletter now twice, not even trying, which is which is great. Spencer over there at, at Unraid has really has really hooked us up. But Christian, from a hardware perspective, would I, if I was thinking about building my own NAS or 
I want a little more home server space. Does that, does that hardware purchasing methodology still hold true? Do I look for that kind of that four year old server stuff coming off of coming off lease? That seems like it's probably these are on three or four year leases, maybe that they're coming off. Is that the same strategy? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple things specifically to when you're buying NASAs in this kind of Goldilocks zone, that's important. One is if you go too old in the hardware, what you typically find is that the power supply efficiency and utilization is crappy. So you end up spending a lot of money to keep it running. Um, If you buy too new, again, when you really look at the use case for the home user, you're probably not expecting to push 500 megabytes per second or greater on a on a NAS, right? We think of it more as kind of like long-term persistent storage, a place to offload. Yeah, you're going to want the ability to stream pictures and music and video off of that NAS maybe to a, uh, a smart television or equivalent, but you don't need the kind of enterprise performance that's expected when you throw, you know, 60, 60 discs in a uh, SAS enclosure and you want it to be screaming, right? That's really not what we're talking about. Um, there are tons of power edge configurations in particular, which is the one I'm pretty excited about lately, where you can get both four drive, eight drive in both the two and a half inch form factor and the three and a half inch form factor. And we're talking like a couple hundred bucks to get the CPU, the RAM, the box, and, um, you know, buy new drives, don't buy used, go pick up, you know, four 10 terabyte drives. And that thing will last you forever. It really will. Um, and one of the things that I think we learned the hard way from the home server show days is that um, this community knows better than anyone that um, my dad and I absolutely loved building the uh, the ripped toaster, so to speak, right? So the HP Media Smart Enclosure, where instead of the single core Celeron, we built them out with quad core uh, Intel and put the BIOS on it to support that CPU. We maxed out the RAM, we put large drives in. And while the form factor was great, the ventilation sucked. And so <laughs> I now have about you know 10 years of data comparing drive failure rates and almost all of my drives have failed coming out of Media Smart boxes. Mm. Um, I, have, I have RAID enclosures that have crossed their 10 year mark and we've lost maybe like, one drive in it. It's nuts. So uh, really important to think about ventilation in the form factor. It, if you can, you know, if you have the space for it and, you know, everyone likes the cutesy little thing that sh- sits on the shelf and is very quiet. But if you're willing to look at just a notch up from that and, you know, you can still look for passive cooling, et cetera, but something that has airflow to it over those discs, it's going to make a huge difference in how long um, you get out of that hardware and, uh, yeah, you can end up building very effective NASAs in that, that time frame of, of hardware life. That temperature thing is, is huge. I mean, even in just my short span of running a few different NAS types, I would say in, in some of the pre-builds, especially some of the, you know, passively cooled QNAPs from back in the day, those drives are two drives that died on me within, you know, a few years. Now with the build I have, I have a Rose will just server chassis fans in the front that blow right onto the, yeah. the 15 drives. I haven't lost a single drive since I've started building with Unraid. Right. And so, I mean, that's been a lot of years. Um, the drives that have gone bad have been, you know, user error of uh, maybe bumping them or dropping them uh, when <laughs> doing some fixes, but yeah, that temperature, it's one that you don't really think about, but makes it makes a really big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Right on. 
And it's, it's so funny too. <laughs> you mentioned drive size and like the different form factors you can get away with nowadays. It's wild with drive sizes for a home media box. You can get away with a two, three or four drive system being more than enough storage. Like I have, it's so much work for me now, but I started my system with two and four terabyte drives and I don't need the, you know, 13 bay drive. I, I wish I could just consolidate. I'm going to do that project at some point and get like three drives and maybe move to a smaller chassis. Uh, but that's been a huge, I think, upgrade for, for most people because most people's storage needs haven't changed too much, but the drive size will get you there a lot quicker. Well, I mean, think about how insane it is even from five years ago where we said uh, if we wanted to do four drives in RAID 5, the average drive size there that was kind of the hot thing was three terabytes. Okay, yep. four three terabyte drives in RAID 5, nine terabytes of effective storage. Or I could go pick up two 10 terabyte drives in RAID 1, spend half the amount of drives, still have redundancy, put a little health notice on it. And guess what? I have the I have one terabyte more effective storage and I paid half the amount of money for that, mm-hmm. that network share. It's like, okay, sounds good. Exactly. And now you could almost start considering solid state for some of this stuff. Yes. If, you know, yeah. for a lot of the storage, right? Yeah, that's the big thing. I mean, especially on the PowerEdge, you can still buy a 1U rack unit that gives you eight, two and a half inch enclosures. You can populate them with 10K SAS drives. Uh, you can populate them with SSDs, like whatever you, whatever you know, tickles your fancy. But there's a lot more configuration options and form factors that are in that price range now. Yeah, and uh, go ahead, Mike. Well, I was going to answer. So, so Bob asked a question, and I'll, I'll get uh, I'll get Christian's thoughts on this. So he had a question: Do you spin your hard drives down, or do you leave them on twenty four seven? I'll answer from my perspective. Um, so on Unraid, I have. Uh, three SSDs, three different cache pools. And obviously those stay on all the time. Those are where my app data for my dockers and those are staying on. Uh, For my array with my drives, I do let them spin down. And that's primarily because a lot of my services don't, you know, the way Unraid works, it's not RAID. So all those files are the whole file is stored on individual drives. So for Plex example, if I load a movie, it only needs to spin up, find the drive that has it, spin that drive up and play it. Um, and Plex is my biggest use case for mine. Um, so I don't need all the drives spinning all the time. When I was doing things like um, using Nextcloud or hosting a lot of files that are accessed all the time, it was better for me to keep them spinning because the time for it to spin up the drive load times were a little bit longer. But when we're talking about just firing up a movie, I'm willing to wait the extra two seconds, three seconds for it to go spin that drive up and go. I've always qu- had the question though. And my question is more of, am I, am I causing more wear and tear by spinning them up and spinning them down than just letting them run all the time? And also with that being said, I do still sometimes throw in, like if I need a drive in a pinch, I will throw in a non NAS drive, just kind of consumer braid desktop drive. Um, for that reason. Um, so I don't know. Th- that's how I do it. I do let them spin down, but that's my rationale for it. I don't think there's a probably end all be all answer. It probably really depends on how you're using your server. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the enterprise answer is always all drives on 24 seven. There's really um, probably a whole, not, not a lot of use cases for spinning drives down if you're in a data center. Right. Um, outside of the data center, it's a little bit of a different story. Um, I don't think that the, for example, if we were to compare failure rates of having poor ventilation to failure rates due to spin up, spin down, I think you'd find temperature 10 to one uh, ratio mm-hmm. for, because I spin drives up and down all the time. Um, good ventilation, keeping, you know, dust and other electrostatic stuff 
out of the chassis, super important, uh, especially for like the, the drive controller and potentially the, the disc controller. Um, Platter density concerns me a little bit with spin up and spin down, like more moving parts, more potential things that can go wrong in a single drive at higher density. Um, But I kind of have to ask myself, like, what is the use case? Um, Do I want these drives to spin down because I want to save on electric? Okay. And then I have to play some games like, what's the additional annual cost for running these 24 seven to the increased risk of the drive failure. And so like, if you're willing to hedge that bet and say, I have enough of these discs that I can handle like a two disc failure and I'm comfortable rolling the dice on, maybe I'm going to get more lucky uh, with hard drive failures than I am with the additional electric cost. like to each his own. Um, I don't feel like there is a canonical right answer for the home user in that respect. Um, For me personally, I love stuff up 24 seven because I love alarming the hell out of it. So like, I want to know when a drive fails. Like I want to know when a smart status says boo. Um, I want to know when a server goes bump in the night and there's just always that little fear gremlin when you walk over to someone's dusty rack and they're like, yeah, I had that on six months ago. It ran great. And you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. So, so for me, my preference is just always on, um, I try to think about power efficiency more in terms of what I'm building, not in terms of runtime hours. For me, runtime hours is a calculus that is a little bit more diminishing returns. That's a really good way. I've never actually asked myself the question, why do I need these to spin down? Like electrical cost has always been the thing, but I've never calculated it's how much so that is saving small, me. Though, Mike. It's I know so small though, Mike. It's got to The hard drive is the most efficient power consumer in the whole box. Like, I mean, they just, they require the least amount of energy. And then you think about, you know, uh, they're spinning. You got, I mean, it takes, it's the old fluorescent light question. Sometimes it just, it's just cheaper to leave the thing on because the startup is so expensive, right? So um, imagine that happening over and over and over and over and over again throughout a day and then multiply that by 365. Christian, do you have, um, do do you ever worry about, I mean, the recovery on a large density, 10 terabyte, 14 now is, is actually 14 is in the average guy's price range for, I mean, they're like 250 yep. bucks, whatever. Do you get worried at all about that that density failing and having then to support a, a re- recovery for that one drive that may, may have been spread out across a couple? I know. Do you think about that? I get more worried that people think that the large one drive is their answer to storage and that, Oh, I'll just buy this one drive and I'm set for life type thing. I'll Um, I'll partition it. So back. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess the other piece of that from a data recovery perspective, it actually probably opens more opportunities for data recovery to be successful because let's say it's only one platter that has problems. They can probably um, make those other platters sing long enough to pull data off that drive. Um, But yeah, um, general tenant is you're smush- you're smushing more amount of moving parts in a equivalent size and in some cases smaller size space and expecting a stable outcome. And it's an engineering effort. It's obviously uh, fairly battle tested stuff. Um, I when I think of recovery time though, like if we're building our systems right at home in the industry, et cetera. Um, we should be thinking about like, okay, how long is it going to take me to rebuild a RAID or a NAS with these size drives? And 
I'm sorry, but like, I, even if you build a NAS based off of hardware from five years ago with, you know, 10 or 14 terabyte drives of today, um, I don't think you're talking about a recovery time that is somehow wildly outside of like when a home user wants to be using the thing again. Um, so no, I don't really worry about it. Um, I think the progression is that we're still, we're still lying in wait for SSDs to be that high density alternative. And I think that's when beyond a shadow of doubt, you know, density will be no object because you still have no moving parts. Yeah, you have more flash memory, um, but it's going to become kind of more throwaway to have flash fail. It's also much more predictable when your flash is going to fail because it's much, uh, you can measure wear on an SSD much more accurately than you can measure wear on moving parts. Uh, so you can plan for it better and these systems can engineer their notifications for it better. And then eventually we're going to move to what you're saying our SSDs caching my Plex server is going to be my DDR5 RAM array is caching my SSDs. Like that's where we're headed. Um, so no, I don't worry about it. I think we'll be here for probably another five to 10 years where these 20 terabyte spinners are the cool thing. And by then we'll be talking about four to eight terabyte SSDs as mainstream. And then it's like, yeah, why wouldn't you go, you know, pick up a couple hundred dollar powered server that has eight, two and a half inch SAS bays, throw in a bunch of those four terabyte SSDs and build like a, a nice little raid, you know, raid 50 NAS, uh, it'd be sweet. Um, so I don't know. I don't worry about these things. A couple comments coming out of chat. Of course, you know, Backblaze does a nice job of publishing their drive failure rates, what's failing and where. So if you kind of if you're kind of wondering, I mean, we're really just down to a couple hard drive companies. So you, you can, it's pretty easy in that to get some numbers to get to, you know, get comfortable with uh, that. Michael is asking any, are, are Iron Wolf drives any better than the other drives? And and I guess I'll throw that out both to you guys. We've, the, the, the hard drive manufacturers have all rebranded their drives over the last couple of years in this marketing trickery. Yeah. Of sort, Christian, any thoughts on as we think about the different, you know, uh, enterprise grade or, um, and, and I want to, uh, let me, before I forget, I want to ask you some questions too. From a hard drive spinning speed perspective from a data center, is it better to get the cooler, slower spinning drives running full time than to have the higher speed drives that may, may have more heat? So two questions there for you. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll speak to the actually the data center use case first because I I think about it a lot more often. Um, with data center, it is a race to the bottom for density. So if you think about just physical dimensions of I'm going to dig dirt, put walls around, I'm going to pay for power and cooling and generators and HVAC systems, and then I'm going to plan out my data center to have X number of rack positions dedicated for storage. Um, if you think about, we were going to go build this data center we're you know, theoretically talking about eight years ago, we'd be wheeling in you know, 42U or 48U rack size storage clusters that are two terabyte disks. And so now we can wheel in 20 terabytes. Hands down, any day of the week, I'm going to pick the highest density drive, even if I have to deal with higher failure rates, because then the power costs that you're paying are astronomically more of an issue than higher drive fault rates. 
Um, so from that perspective, um, I would always bias in a large enterprise deployment, take the higher drive fault rates because the density in a single data center building is just going to be so much better uh, what you can do today. Um, outside of that, um, looking more at home, again, we're really talking about drive performance ratings. So it's like, okay, you have the Iron Wolf, you have all these different series, you could go up to enterprise SaaS drives. And all it really comes down to is two things. One, like, what is the rated, like, read writes per year you're going to get out of this drive for how many years? Um, And two is like, um, what is the expected speed or performance you're going to get of that drive in the average case. And so um, I, again, tend to bias a little bit towards one home doesn't care about top end speeds for spinners. Okay. Two, um, we care a little bit more about fault rates of drives because we don't feel like, you know, having to, you know, deal with NASA's like 24 seven, we like to play with other things like home theaters and media servers and what have you. So um, again, like if your wallet is, is singing to you that money is no object, like go get the higher rated thing. Um, if you want to build something on a budget, again, you these days, your dice roll is probably pretty good that, you know, like, let's just say even within the Iron Wolf, there's two models. Do you want the Iron Wolf or do you want the Iron Wolf Pro? Um, and, and chances are Iron Wolf Pro at 10 terabytes versus, you know, standard Iron Wolf, you know, number one, you're talking a difference of like 40 bucks. So like, not a huge like dice roll if you want to get the higher rated drives that can handle the 24 seven. Um, but even without that, again, um, I, I only think you, you, you get super hung up in, in branding of drives or classes of drives. If you're trying to build towards a specific use case, if you're building towards general use case, um, cling cling dearly and closely to just a bunch of discs, right? I'm just going to go buy a bunch of discs on the shelf. The specs to me are somewhat irrelevant. I'm going to put them in a cool environment that has good airflow. I'm going to put some decent operating system on it that is not going to corrupt my data. Like probably don't use Windows storage spaces because it's just, they're never going to get it right. Um, probably use like an Unraid or, you know, something that's community supported and like have fun with it. Like don't overthink it. Everything Christian said, completely agree. Um, I think I think the one thing too is, you know, a lot of the marketing and a lot of the, the difference as you start to go up to enterprise drives is drives that are engineered to be very close together in very large amounts, right? They deal with vibration a little bit better. And it, usually in the home environment, it's it's not a huge issue. Um, so from that perspective, don't need to spend any more money. I completely agree with Christian. Just, you know, get a bunch of discs. I've had really good luck with Western Digital, right? Uh, but I also have Seagate. If you would look at my Unraid machine, there's a mixture of all of them, mixture of sizes. What I will say, though, is just whatever OS you choose, get very comfortable with and practice and know the process for replacing a drive when it goes bad. Because I think really when it comes down to it, it's the stress of if this go bad, man, what's this going to take? How much time? But if you've done it before, you know it. Like for me, if a drive goes down an unraid, I am, it, 
doesn't bother me at all because the process is so simple. I've done it before. You swap it out. Unraid, you know, emulates that data until you can get a new drive in there. Um, and I put one in. And, and so it, it has, it's not a big pain for me. Uh, but before I knew how to do it and before I had been forced to do it, it was more stressful. So I think just know your system, know your recovery. I think a lot of us, we talk about this a lot with backup, right? It's we do all the backup and then it comes to, well, how are you actually going to recover that? Like where are you going to pull from? Mm-hmm. How are you going to get that implemented? Do you know you, how to do it? Do you know how to do it? Like all your stuff's on backblaze. Okay. Yeah. But when your unrate system goes down, if you needed to slurp all that back in, do you know how you're going to do it? Um, so I would just know those different methods of what you're going to do. It's a super salient point um, because, uh, you know, some of the clients that I've worked with uh, through Maple Grove, they, um, their firms, you know, get, get audited and they require, um, increasingly auditors require that the organization prove that they have a comprehensive IT disaster recovery plan. And these are for organizations that like technology is a means to an end, right? It's not their business or their bread and butter. Um, And it's, absolutely spot on how many things start to fall out as you write that document for clients that like, Oh yeah, there's this thing. And there's this thing. And yeah. Like how would you get that person in here to service this equipment? And like, if it, if you know, if it catches on fire tomorrow, like what are you going to replace it with? And uh, yeah, super salient exercise. Um, one of the things that makes me sad as, as a technology enthusiast, uh, both in the home and in the enterprise is that, it's just getting so hard to beat, um, you know, for $10 a month, you go get a hundred terabytes of cloud storage somewhere and like all these problems go away for you. But what fun would that be? Right. Um, <laughs> so like from a pricing perspective, like you're never going to beat the price of just go buy, like, even if you spent like 30 or 50 bucks a month on cloud storage, like you're, you'll, you'll probably never be able to beat that in home anymore, building it yourself. That's just the economy of scale that we're in. Um, and that said, one of the things about that is, well, guess what? You have a great disaster recovery plan. It's called the providers taking care of it for you. Have a nice day. Um, but anything outside of that, like it goes back to some of the fundamental things we talk about at home tech. Like I still can't tell you how many people um, don't have a plan to back up, th- restore their Windows machine. Oh, it's somewhere in Carbonite, but oh, Carbonite doesn't really do bare metal backups anymore. So like, oh, like all my apps, yeah, those weren't backed up. I have like my document storage. And like, these are these are real world customer testimonies that I've dealt with in the last six months where it's like, oh boy. Um, and, and quite honestly, it's shocking to me that, you know, here we are in 2022 and, and Microsoft has Windows 11, the next big thing. And it's still like, oh yeah, like use that, that Windows 7 backup and restore tool in the control panel that we're deleting if you want that bare metal system backup image, wink, wink, because they're trying to move you towards, if your box has a problem with it, do the reset, do the auto repair. Like pretty much we're moving towards, the industry is moving towards the direction where operating system configurations for the home user really don't matter to uh, providers anymore. It's like your data, your documents, your videos, your pictures, your music. We're going to give you 20 different ways to back that up. But backing up your operating system and your applications, like that's an area that's still lagging, not for lack of ability to do it, but because the industry is specifically moving people towards if your device has something weird with the OS, just reinstall the OS. Mm-hmm. Like don't bother yourself with that multi-month or or super saga on on the one eight hundred number to get a healthy operating system back. 
Well, and we're moving in this area of mobile where, I mean, more people are, so few people are on PCs anymore, just to be honest. They're, it's their phones. And that's, those operating systems were written in a way to be back fast, to be yeah. disposable, to be, to your point, you know, it's your data. I care so little about my data anymore. I mean, yeah, pictures, I kind of, but that's kind of the, like pictures are really the last bastion of, I've got stuff other places and spread out and I can reconstruct it if I need to. Now I'm, maybe I'm not the typical, you know, I'm not the typical user. Um, you know, Christian, if one day you said, if you called me, you're like, yeah, I've all your audio is gone. Well, okay. I mean, I think I have it all backed up somewhere. I mean, I'm pretty sure I've got a backblaze backup of all the audio that I've created, but have I checked that? Do I really know? Is everything there? You know, kind of deal. Does it, the, at the end of the day, the question is, does it matter? You know, yeah. on some of this stuff, you know, does it matter? Yeah. I, I mean, um, it matters as much as you want it to matter. I that's, think that's my point. Yeah. That's my point. It matters for some people. That's a big, important, they can't. And we all have that kind of data where we're like, ah, I'll recreate it. And then we have like, oh, I got those pictures or that audio or whatever, those movies. Um, well, and that's actually, be, that's becoming more of the challenge, I think, is not where do I store it? How do I store it? How do I configure it? But how do I retrieve, organize, and understand it? Yeah. Because now we have the ability yeah. to. Um, where did I put, where did I put it? Yeah. Now, now we have the <laughs> yeah. ability to be like those horrible, you know, IT horror shows where you get the laptop from someone to fix and their desktop is just littered with icons left to right <laughs> as their background. It's like that on fire with yeah. people's data because now storage is no object. Um, data rates is no object. And so it's like stuff, stuff, stuff. I don't have to worry about deleting, cleaning, going through, yet alone, you know, finding it. I'm going to talk to Cortana and Cortana is going to, you know, reach into the depths of her search index and pull something out that I need. But um, even myself included, like increasingly, it's more questions about what are the tools to effectively manage and curate that data, tag, index, sort it, face tag people, um, that kind of discussion, I think we don't have enough because the discussion for so long has been just how do I get the data into a place where I'm not going to lose it and I can get to it, but not what do I do within it. And I think this new system, Christian, you summarized it really well of kind of like where the industry has gone, right? Where it's protecting your data and it's everywhere. Um, in an instance where with hard hardware failure, computer failure, whatever you want to call it, this new system almost favors the the techie guy compared to the average user. What I mean by that is if, if my computer, if my OS were to get completely corrupted, um, I actually don't do bare metal backups. I, I don't back up the hard drive. I just, cause I, all of my data to your point that I care about is saved off site. And then I use it as an opportunity. Hey, the few apps that I, that I use, I know exactly where to go to get those. I know my logins for those accounts. I use the, you know, I have very organized, you know, Adobe cloud, all these things where I can go grab that. That is quicker for me than actually going out, finding my restore, putting reflash in the drive. Whereas the non-techie average user, if their computer goes down, they don't know where all those apps are. They don't even remember their logins to their Adobe cloud and they've never gone back and redownloaded stuff. And oh, well, they don't even know what app it was they were using to do X, Y, and Z task. And I think that is actually more detrimental to the average person on hard drive failure than it is the the techie driven person. 
it was almost like they would benefit more from being able to have that, you know, the Windows 7 restore kind of go back to, to an old version type of backup. Well, I just I think of all my family who call me and I just know if one of them today <laughs> were to have a failure and, you yeah. know, the backup, it's no longer, oh, yeah, I'm backing up to an external drive, creating a clone. Um, it's just, oh, yeah. And, and the, the best that would make of the apps would be more time than anything they don't a lot of times they don't have a clue we're we, we're back every time christian we, we go back to the home server show topic that we used to talk about all the time there, it's a different i mean and i think even in the enterprise we're moving to less and less of a footprint on the desktop and it's just becoming you know there's so much so much web app usage and i mean i think actually people get more disgruntled when they lose their shortcuts than when they when they actually lose hardware because it's like, hey, I'm going to log in. The system's going to push my configuration to me, but I got to have my shortcuts. Like, I don't know where anything's at. I I go up and pull it down, and I, I don't know what that, where that website is. I can't type that in. So it's another, I mean, that's a whole other area of, of data dependency is the, the, the hardware isn't, I mean, we can quickly replace that. It's the functionality of being able to, do you do the processes that are associated with that role and how they, and you know, the, the, the browser is more important than it's ever been. That's actually an operating system in a, in a lot of ways. If I can, if I can't get to it from the browser, I'm kind of screwed. Christian, speaking of that, let's talk a little bit about network infrastructure uh, because I think, you know, you're seeing a lot of that in, in what you do. I've, you know, I have Cox communication here and I've been a little not I've been a little disgruntled with them over the last year. Never before have I been as disappointed kind of with their service. And and I've been toying with the idea of actually going to 5G. So yeah. T-Mobile offers kind of home 5G, and I've been kind of messing with it. We've been toying and talking about IV, uh, IPv6. That doesn't ever seem like it's ever going to come, but it's going to have to, I think, at some point. So, Give us the uh, Christian Johnson, uh, you know, five, 10 minute version of where do we stand from an infrastructure standpoint? Where are things going? We'll do a little mini Cyber Frontiers episode here and you can kind of school us on what you're seeing ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think 2022 is probably one of the biggest years for um, consumer network access. And um, there's a couple things driving that. Number one, in the eight to 10 year ago timeframe, a lot of these foundational technologies were getting laid out from like bare bones, like spec to implementation, IPv6 being, you know, one of them. Um, we always talked about, well, how fast is that adoption going to happen? It's obviously been slower than even most people expected. Um, we're up to around 38% or so today, which honestly, not bad. I think we're going to see another hockey stick uh, take that up to probably over 50% in the next two years. That's my, my guess anyway. Um, but I'm just going to kind of walk through kind of some of the technology evolutions and then why that has all kind of hit ahead on 2022 being a big year for the home um, and for um, just network-based things in general. So first you have IPv6 and, you know, the problem that people are trying to solve was, well, we're out of IPv4 addresses, but it actually did something 
you know, much more important that we talked about on Cyber Frontiers, which is it gave way to Internet of Things being a reality and a possibility in a way that it couldn't have been prior, where each device has a unique address that is not being interpreted by something called network address translation, which was purely built for the purpose of dealing with public to private handling of data. Um, I think a lot of people in their mental model thought, oh, I need this thing called NAT because I need to protect my home devices from being out there on the internet. And so NAT in most people's mind became synonymous with firewall. And that's a huge no. Um, NAT more or less is just this huge overhead that sucks tons of power generators in the in the world to just run the NAT protocol in that part of the TCP stack. Um, and, and it's inefficient, right? So if for nothing else, you wanna know why IPv6 is exciting, um, internet is notionally faster, more robust, less congested because you're not running NAT. And it's not just about you as the consumer running NAT, it's about all of these destinations that you're going out to, right? So if you're trying to talk to you know, the nearest CDN that's gonna give you um, a Netflix stream, for example, right? You're still several hops away. Maybe that's going through a proxy or reverse proxy. Uh, maybe you're hitting a web service that is 20 hops away from where your home is. And how many of those interme intermediary services are performing um, BGP peering as well as network address translation to the ports that you're trying to talk to? So um, getting to IPv6 is was is very foundational for the start of the Internet of Things because each device, whether it's a refrigerator or an enterprise data center server, has its own address. The IPv6, it's 64 bits, you know, typically just default model here. First 64 bits, public prefix, second 64 bits, private prefix. And this gives you, you know, more permutations of addresses that you ever want to have to think about um, to, to account for all your devices. So that was kind of like the second foundational thing was we had IPv6. No one really knew how to use it, yet alone deploy it. Um, then Internet of Things kind of came along a couple years later. Um, both have had their growing pains. Both have been somewhat, they've hit their hype curve on the Gartner chart. Now we're starting to see the growth maturity curve. It's, it's kind of exciting. So I have a um, question on IPv6. Do yeah. You, like, do you think, cause I am the bozo you were referring to that in my mind, as I have learned network as a lay person, this isn't my day job, right? I only know how to secure my network and divvy up VLANs and everything using that. Right, like in my mind, when I'm trying to block IP addresses, when I'm doing all that, that is my sense of security. And so, the reason I have not implemented IPv6 is because I have no idea how to yeah. do all of that. With I, so has that been the root cause of a lot of lack of adoption? Like we talked about, you had mentioned 38. percent Is the rest of that due to just the industry catching up to getting away from that thought, or is there other factors at play on the adoption rate? Now, honestly, home users play, I would say, the least role in adoption of IPv6, as weird as that sounds. Um, the number of years it's taken for both governments and industry to engineer and architect their IPv6 networks to scale correctly, handle the, the correct way of doing security, handle peering, um, you know, notionally in your head, it's like, oh, it's just a bigger address. But no, like, the actual protocol space at layer two, layer three has changed with 
with IPv6. And so um, as industries have come online to bringing those networks up, these numbers are adopting because consumers are eventually at the end destination. The turnkey example of this is cell phone networks, right? So there's a big increase in IPv6 adoption because all of your cell phones probably are getting IPv6 addresses, not IPv4. And so like you didn't have to do anything. You bought that iPhone and turned it on to Verizon or T-Mobile. And guess what? Now you're an IPv6 user. And you probably have no idea unless you go to your iPhone or Android settings and say, hmm, what is the IP address that my cell tower is giving me, right? Um, and so as these carriers and, and network providers, both in the home space and the enterprise space, really start to come up to speed with those networks and they become more commonplace, the home users are just going to sadly uh, be along for the ride. And that's probably a good thing, right? So, um, and I will talk a little bit about how that's going to get even more exciting for fiber to the home here shortly, but it's a short way of saying no. I mean, the industry, it's pretty well understood. There's been a lot of concerns around backwards compatibility between four and six. And so that's accounted for a fair amount of time. Like we're going to run these dual stacks because we know there's going to be legacy devices and services that'll talk IPv4 for years after six is mainstream. Um, so that's, that's um, I would say a much larger piece of it. By the time okay. it's, you know, you playing around with your PFSense box at home and wondering what the hell I'm doing. Um, guess what? You're again kind of waiting. Well, gee, is my ISP actually giving me an IPv6 address? And it's like, oh, they are. Cool. So then, yeah, from that time, now it's on you, Mike, to figure out, like, do you want to turn on IPv6 in your home? Like, are you going to set up your gateway to do that correctly? Um, but that usually is a, I think that's going to be towards the tail end of IPv6 adoption, not the primary uh, source. Yeah, because in my head, I turn on IPv6, and now every ac- every device in my home has a direct access to the internet and can be accessed. I know that's, you know, I have to learn the security around it. So it, I think from a home user, I think, you know, John brought up a good point, I think whoever said it in the chat, that, you know, for a home user, it's probably not as as prevalent and, and not as necessary, right, for, for us to adopt. It probably will be, and you're right, we'll probably be along for the ride. I'm not yeah, ready for that ride. I'm just not ready term- for that ride yet. <laughs> I have a lot no, of Googling to do. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, John brings up a great point. It's like, well, how has the security model changed between four and six? And it's like, yes, host-based security is always a great thing. Like defense in depth says we secure our devices on the network as much mm-hmm. as we secure the network itself. Uh, and we 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 place zero trust in saying that a device on the network has some level of trust, like prove it. Um but the networks themselves can defend these devices in much the same way. So like my PFSense edge device at home, it's not going to be a NAT rule. You're going to be enabling an allow or a block firewall rule, and it's going to sit on an interface that's um, filtering IPv6 packets between your WAN interface and your local area network, right? So like all okay. those things are still there. It's just the mechanisms by which people think about it. Like when you go and create a NAT rule in PFSense, like, behind the scenes, it's automatically creating for you that firewall rule and entry to allow that traffic to flow. And you're Got like, it. oh, no, 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 no. This is a NAT rule. Well, no, yeah. it's it's <laughs> it's a NAT rule, but it's also a firewall rule. And there's both. In fact, you can go delete the firewall underlying rule entry and break your NAT entry by unlinking I've, them. And have I've one done that. The other. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're exactly. right. Yeah. When they're not so, anchored, I need a little anchor symbol, right? To tell me they're tied together. <laughs> yeah. So like the, the simple mental model is to think, well, gee, um, yeah, that whole NAT 
part of the screen goes away, but I'm still going to have these firewall tables where I can filter traffic coming in and out. I can filter protocols coming in and out. I can filter source ranges. And with IPv6, it's going to be a little bit of a different art form, right? That first um, 64 bits of the address is really the equivalent of what's your public IPv4. So today we think of it as a single IPv4 address comes to your house and then you have all your devices on your local area network and they all shoot out that device or get port forwarded to a device behind the gateway. With IPv6, it's more like, no, each of the providers are going to give you what's called a prefix delegation. That prefix delegation is like at N size. And if you actually look at each bit that makes up that prefix delegation, it gets more and more specific. So it's like the world, um, this ASN, like Verizon, Jim's house, and then like Jim's house is like a slash 56 bit address, which means like Jim has like, you know, thousands of IPv6 addresses uh, for his home. And that prefix is always going to be the first 56 bits of any IPv6 uh, device sitting in Jim's house. And the remaining bits that make up the 128 bits of IPv6, that's going to be your unique address for my phone or for my smart TV or for my fridge. So it more than solves the addressing problem. It still allows you to have um, kind of conventional security, but there's more things on the enterprise that have to be thought about for securing protocol layer, peering layer, et cetera. Um, and there's also just what I call, there's a lot more IP fabrics, right? So like with IPv4, it's like we thought of things as address classes. So you had, you know, C-class addresses with a particular subnet size, and that meant something to a network engineer. Now with IPv6, um, it's like we have unicast and multicast in addition to broadcast, which is IPv4. So lot more different ways to skin the cat for how IPv6 devices can talk directly to each other locally, Um, how IPv6 devices can broadcast messages to the world, both locally and out to the internet. Um, So there's a lot more ways of doing things with IPv6 that IPv4 didn't necessarily afford. Got it. Christian Joe's asking, is there a geo IP system for IPv6? Like, you know, he says, that's how I keep my Chinese devices from... (laughs) phoning home. Yeah, I, I haven't um, dug as in-depth with that yet, but I believe it traces back to the concept of the prefix, right? So these prefixes are being handed out, like the organizations get their list of prefixes, which I believe go back to the internet registry, and that's going to that's gonna map to geo context. So it's not like you're going to have an adjacent IPv6 address where N is in the US and N plus one is in China. So um, I, I can't elucidate with the clarity I would have liked to on that question, but it should, it should, it's going to basically come down to instead of blocking IPv4 CIDR blocks that represent like China as a country, it's going to be, I'm blocking prefix lists, which are, you know, one prefix list represents, you know, potentially millions of addresses, right? I'm just hoping all this ends up making as much sense to me one day as IP. Like I I understand IPv4 and I understand how it all works. And like, I'm hoping one day that's just like, it'll click, but everything you said, it's like, Oh man, that's just a lot of work. Mike, remember when you were first learning, you know, four and you're like, okay, how does this work? And what's a subnet? And why did it, you know, 
And then all of a sudden you use it for a while and you're like, oh, okay, this kind of makes sense. You kind of understand how to read the map. You get the language. Um, you know, for my A plus certificate or for my N plus certification, we need to study all that. And that was one of those kinds of things at first. You kind of go, what? And then you use it and you're like, oh, the layers make yeah. sense. I think, I mean, a lot of work and effort and, and brain power has gone into to six. And I, I think eventually when it matters to us, you know, when we get to that point, we're like, okay, we're going to really need to. There's these devices that only are going to work on, on IPv6. We're going to need to, we are going to need to understand this and take advantage of it, right? Uh, and so I think there's some, Christian, it's just, we've been talking about this forever. Like yeah. It just feels well, like, you know. But the exciting thing is, while well, we've been talking about it forever, uh, it's been 2022 is going to be the year where I think a lot of these fruits start to pay off. So number one, um, with IPv6 increasingly rolling out, in fact, Verizon Fios, finally, which has been one of the longest pulls in the tent for consumers getting IPv6, they're rolling it out to their business and residential customers this year. They started deployments on January 9th, which is really exciting. Uh, it's coming out to more and more folks. So um, as a diehard Fios fan, awesome news for for uh, myself and the other 10 million people on the network. Um Two, you're seeing 5G ISP stuff just come out of the woodwork at really great prices, really great data rates, no data caps, um, and fairly good availability. Um, I can't underscore a big part of that is because of how much has gone into IPv6 and the mundane kind of plumbing um, and then just the evolution of uh, FCC spectrum combined with going from 4G to 5G, et cetera. Um, you know, they're talking about 6G now already, right? But for all intents and purposes, like 5G is going to continue to grow as this main mechanism where a decade ago, we thought the big thing was we got to get every home in America to have fiber to the home. Now, if I was given a menu of options, I'm going to buy fiber to the home every time I can get it because low its latency, um, it does a lot of exciting things. But like the reality is that if I'm out in the Midwest and there's, you know, I'm a hundred miles from the nearest fiber node, like, sorry, like fiber, fiber to the home is like a nice word that I read in the news now and then. And I think, huh, if only I didn't have these coax cables out at my house. Right. So 5G is really, I think, going to bridge a lot of those customers in a way that just wasn't affordable, realistic, or accessible before. And it's going to have a domino effect of Cox and Spectrum and these other providers who have really sucked people dry on um, the dead technology of these coax-based internets with the data caps and the crappy networks. Like, they're going to lose customers in volume when people wake up and go, oh, so you mean to tell me I pay for cell phones and you're going to give me like a 25% discount that like for an extra 50 bucks a month, you're going to put this router and modem in my home that streams 5G, gives me faster symmetric bandwidth than coax at a lower price, and it's more reliable. Where do I sign? Um, and many of them are doing it without contracts. So it totally blows up the mental model of the Coxes and the Spectrums having that core base of customers that they've been able to keep merely because there was no better option on the market. Yeah. No, no other option. Right. In right. a lot of cases, so, right. 
So it's, Christian, yeah. you're going to determine right now. You're going to determine because I've been thinking like, so T-Mobile, I, I can get T to 5G. I get almost better speeds than I'm getting on the, my Gigablast at half the price. Yeah. Works well. I'm on that same network here. So it's not like I'm going to get surprised. I know it works in this area from the shed. This is what I used to stream from the shed as I just. I just put my phone up in the corner and, and put it on a mobile hotspot. It works great, right? Um, as long as I don't have the VPN turned on. And then, um, so should I, at half the price, if you're if you're yes. my technology advisor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because Gigablast <laughs> is like, okay, what? You get, it, it, think about how crazy it is, the market that we've built. You get Gigablast, which is Cox's amazing branding for, we're going to help you get to your data cap faster. <laughs> That's what that plan translates to. You're Any, right. You're right. You could give me 10 gig, but if it's a data cap, well, yeah. who cares, right? right. So and, and 35 meg up. Right. Exactly. Right. Like that, that, that's, that's my biggest complaint about it is I would, data cap, 35 yeah. meg up. It's it's awful. For the average home person who, by the way, probably really doesn't know what to do with gigabit to begin with, um, I would take I would take symmetric half gig at half the cost hands down yeah, over yeah. a coax based gigablast oh, service yeah. with the data cap like there's just no comparison yeah. i take 250 or 200 yes. symmetric right like yeah agreed yeah. completely jo agree joe mentions he goes if you're going t-mobile home internet i'd wait for the new modem they've had issues with the trash can overheating and and i imagine that's something you're gonna yes. have to kind of watch and keep track of and, and joseph's actually preempting my part two of of this right so we have the network upgrades. We have the address upgrades. We have the infrastructure upgrades. That's lended way for this wave of 5G deployments, which is going to be the death in the coffin of coax-based ISPs. Now you have this, two, well, three things left. The first, to address Joe's point, um, all of the Man, you've all of the ISPs, Verizon, uh, I've been looking at in particular, like they're in, uh, they're really innovative companies. We'll, we'll just use Verizon as kind of the example because, quite frankly, I, I can't think of a better residential um, internet provider. Their JD Power consistently rates them number one every year. Um, they are the um, classic example of a company that had a choice to make. Choice one was, I don't think any of the executives at Verizon really understood how long the return on investment was going to be for fiber to the home, because it's expensive to deploy this stuff. Like they spent billions of dollars building that infrastructure out and getting that revenue and return on investment to be profitable in fiber to the home. It's a much longer time horizon than the average guy would think. Combine that with 5G, where it's like they've kind of already done all that fiber to the home is really just fiber is now enabling these 5G towers. The cost per consumer to get on a high-speed network is going to be way lower for Verizon, um, but they have a choice to make. Like we have all these subscribers on fiber to the home. Fiber to the home is still, I call it the gold standard. So, you know, symmetric, true fiber optic, no coax, no, you know, nonsense. Uh, we could get into what types of fiber optic networks they're using. Uh, GPON is currently the standard for Verizon. It's a passive optical network. They're getting ready to move to um, XGPON2, which is a little bit different. And basically you can think of it, one cable on the street splits out light 
into n number of homes that's going to ride that single fiber cable to the what they call the central office or the optical line uh, termination point. And um, you really you can't beat that in terms of residential cost to have a true fiber connection. But again, coming back to this whole thing, Verizon has this choice to make. They have this invested this huge network for fiber. It's not going away. They've also invested in this huge 5G network deployment. How do they bridge the gap for their residential customers when they're trying to market both options? The brilliance in what they did was they said, one ONT and one router device to rule them all. So first off, Verizon split their ONT from their modem and router a long time ago. Then secondly, what they released in the last year the 5G router that you buy if you go buy the Verizon 5G internet plan is now the same router that they install in a new Fios residential customer's home if they're using Verizon Fios. So now it doesn't really matter what the input source is. I could be a 5G customer or I could be a Fios customer. I have that same router form factor. In addition to that, that router now has new features that are driving what I call the the spectrum of broadband within the home. So Wi-Fi 6E is really taking off. It's it's a Wi-Fi 6 in general with both the FCC opening that spectrum and you're seeing a whole new generation of routers come out. Now Verizon's kind of combining all of that. You get a Wi-Fi 6 router. It can take in a 5G signal. It can take in a fiber of the home signal. And so all of these providers and carriers are going to focus on building the best router that they can bundle for you with a plan and produce in mass. And then in addition to that, these routers, you know, used to be the gold standard to have gigabit ports on the back. Well, now if you go look at that latest Verizon router, the CR3100, I think it's like a, it's a model number that's barely out there yet. Um, It has a 10 gigabit WAN port on the back for its LAN ports. It has two and a half gigabit LAN ports. And these are you know, the same commodity device that used to be the crappy Westel or the crappy action tech, like that's the device we're now talking about a decade later is we're putting this single box in your home that can do 5G, fiber to the home and inside the house, guess what? With Wi-Fi 6E, you can get uh, multi-gig speeds to your devices. You have multi-gig over two and a half gig LAN ports, which are coming on all the newer motherboards. And you have a WAN port that can handle up to 10 gig. Holy cow. Now you've seen the convergence of IPv6, fiber to the home, 5G, the FCC's opening of broadband for 5G and the 6 gigahertz spectrum, the Wi-Fi 6, 802.11ax spectrum, and you have like six or seven major different network and broadband technologies all in one box, and it's coming to consumers in mass. So 2022 is a big year for IPv6 adoption because this stuff's going to roll out everywhere. So as... Jim and Mike and everyone decides that Gigablast is a thing of the past, they're they're going to be migrating themselves to IPv6 because they're going to get themselves on a 5G network. So that adoption is going to take care of itself when Cox has to kill off their, their, their coax network and find a new business. Um, to make it super exciting, the icing on the cake for the enthusiasts like myself is that, well, wait a second, you just told me that there is a 10 gigabit WAN port on the back of the device. Why is that? Well, it's because in 2022, Verizon's going to announce, they haven't done it formally yet. Um, You can read the interwebs of DSL reports and uh, Reddit, if you will. 
but Verizon's going to go to what I call gigabit connection 2.0. They're going to release symmetric two gigabits per second. You might think that's revolutionary, but they're under pressure from AT&T, which is offering up to 5,000 or five gigabits per second symmetric. They're under pressure from Google Fiber, which is two gig, two down, one up. They're under pressure from Comcast Gigabit Pro, a very little known service that's run by their Metro E team that doesn't use the coax connection, but is actually a fiber to the home solution that's symmetric three gigabits per second. And so you're going to see all the fiber to the home providers continuing to drive that edge of what's possible for the home enthusiast by moving people into 10 gig standards. And you're going to see it both in 10 gig Ethernet deployments with the copper cable, CAT6 or CAT6A standard. You're also going to see it in some instances with multi-mode fiber. So you're going to get a, a, a multi-mode 850 nanometer thing. You're going to plug it into a Juniper router and you're going to be running fiber. It's crazy, like multi-mode fiber in the house. Like everyone thinks, oh my gosh, that's a data center thing. What are you talking about? What are these SFPs? Um, and you probably won't see that in most of the deployments. Gigabit Pro is a fairly rare exception that does that. Um, but the point is that fiber to the home is going to continue to drive those standards for the, the highest end thing you can get. And it's going to keep the routers and the 5G and eventually the 6G all in lockstep with those foundational technologies where the consumer is going to have just this explosion of possibilities for what type of internet, what type of bandwidth, what type of connectivity-based services they want to consume in their life. Um, and we haven't even talked about the revolution going on in satellite-based internet and Starlink and these other things that are going to be surprises. So the ecosystem and the competition for internet-based services is turning up to like a thousand percent. It's probably one of the most exciting topics that's under-talked about in consumer shows right now is that 2022 is a huge year for network broadband. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you can get access to all these services. And you're going to be like, well, wait a second. No one told me or gave me a heads up. I mean, it's crazy. Like I'm not hearing a lot of people talk about it in a very like average guy way. But the fact that that level of capability is coming at these price points we're talking about and at this level of accessibility, it's kind of one of the dreams that we've talked about on this show for a long time. So it's no longer like, oh yeah, you know, Christian in Buffalo, New York, when he had his Fios was like the only guy who could get it because New York was one of the first deployment places. Like, no, we're talking like all 50 states are going to have major options for internet. And really it's, it's quite frankly, it's about time because if you look at some of the other places in Korea and Brazil, they're way ahead in their IPv6. Everyone's got 10 gig fiber going to their home. Like it's, it's interesting that it's taken us kind of longer to figure out all the jigsaw infrastructure pieces of the U.S.-based internet. Um, but I think we're finally like 2022 is going to be a big year. So I'm excited about it. Mm. When you're first, you have legacy. And we've had a lot of legacy to unwind in that. Right? Yeah. I mean, it was really it's sometimes that's the curse of being first. It is right. Yeah. Is you then you build? I mean, this has been Windows' problem. Is they were the curse of being first, and they have all this legacy they got to unwind. And so I'm it's ready like flying to flying a Boeing and trying to swap out the engines mid-flight, <laughs> right? Because like you're yeah. you're in flight, you're going. Yeah. It's like oh shoot, now we're trying to swap all this out, but we need to keep everything running. But, but imagine so if you excited. designed. I just it. signed up for uh, notifications when Verizon 5G home service would be available for me. Because yeah. the price is $50 a month. Yeah. I'm paying $140 yeah. to Cox just for 
internet. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm at a hundred and some change, Mike. Yeah. And T-Mobile's 50, right? There are, to what yeah. Christian said, right? They have no problem coming in and, and cutting this low price just because the infrastructure, they're not having to lay cable, right? And so they're not having to support that piece. And yeah, there's towers, and but the, I think the economies are just better, you know, when we think about it from that perspective. So I'm I'm going to give it a try. I, I've... <laughs> I have been, this has been on my mind for a while. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to go. You bring it up almost every over. episode. It's I, been, know. <laughs> I don't know if I want to switch over the pain. If it doesn't work, I got to, then I got to go crawling back to Cox, but I'm going to give a shot. Is there any issue with like carrier grade NAT issues and not being able to port forward or anything with any of these uh, T-Mobiles, Verizons, or can you still host stuff behind the, or are we going to have to switch to IPv6 if we want to do any of that hosting? Yeah, that's going to be one of the interesting things. Um, fiber to the home is still by far the best for hosting. Right. Um, with most of the cellular-based, 5G-based internet, I expect um, I expect it's going to be more nuanced at first. Um, it is not quite clear what the dual stack approach is for 5G when it's not your cell phone and it's, you know, mm. it's coming into your house. Um, so it's, it, it is probably a much higher bar there in that respect. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, NAT's a big limitation to getting back in. And that's that's certainly true for many of the implementations. Um, but I, I will say where there's a will, there's a way. Um, yeah. There's a lot of reverse proxying and other types of capabilities that you can do to kind of reverse tunnel in the world where CG NATs are in place. So um might not be the conventional type of hosting you're used to thinking where it's like an IP and it hits a firewall and you get access to your services. Um, but there's, there's yeah. more than one way to skin a cat. Um, right. Cause I use a reverse proxy. Now everything goes to four, four, three, and that reverse proxy splits that all out into the different, you know, hosting things. And that's just one thing I know in, uh, even in Lincoln, there is a Nebraska, there's a host provider and they are by far best speeds, lowest price, but again, it's carrier grade NAT. And so a lot of the people who are trying to do um, a lot of things like, oh man, it's a double NAT and they run into all those sort of issues. So interesting. It'll, we'll, we'll see how that deployment goes and um, I'll let someone else be the guinea pig and then start writing up really good blog posts on how to accomplish that goal. Yeah, for sure. I've, uh, I've even thought about ordering the service and running two for a while, like bring it in, set it up, connect some of my devices Ooh. to and set up a PF sense box and a failover, right? To really both cool. so that I've got, yeah, I can kind of run them side by side and then jettison, you know, um, you know, for a month. I mean, it gives you kind of gives you a month to try it out. It's 50 extra bucks. Why wouldn't I? So I get that figured out tonight and, and uh, get that taken care of tomorrow and get that rolling. Christian, like always, the time flies. We'll have to have you back. I know you're building a pretty nice home theater setup and that may be a whole conversation on its own so we'll, get, sure. you we'll get you back and what how how far along are you in the process of building out this home theater is it done is it 50 percent done are you still planning it where are you at with the process i'm about at the 80 70 to 80 percent point okay. so i have uh, most of the hardware at this point i'm still kind of working on the space some of the wiring some of the the wall um outlets and kind of cleaning it up um but 
uh, the big pieces are in and, uh, I've started having a lot of fun with it. So, okay. Okay. Well, we'll get, uh, behind the scenes. You and I will figure out a quick date to get you back on and then spend some time talking about the home theater setup and what you're, what you're doing with that. Are you doing it? Do you feel like it's, are you bleeding edge, cutting edge, average consumer? Where do you think? I, oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say in the world of like hi-fi audiophile type stuff, I'm probably more on the mid spectrum, but in terms of the average consumer, it's fairly new stuff. Um, but we're talking like, uh, probably the oldest technology in the build is the the speakers themselves, which have been around for uh, three years now. Um, but uh, I've had a lot of fun trying to get the high end effect for the mid range price. Um, so not really looking to spend like what I call the Looney Tunes money that I, I so I've quickly learned in my my dabbling in home theater, which by no means I find myself an expert. I'm learning on the fly. Um, home theaters are, uh, bottomless pits for your wallet and they are bottomless <laughs> pits for your time. Um, and they are also, uh, bottomless pits for either earning or not earning a uh, favor with your wife, depending on how much time <laughs> is going to your home theater yes. versus your wife versus your wife's ability yes. to enjoy your home theater. Um, so there's all these trade-offs to balance, but, uh, by and by and large, it's a, it's a fairly modern build. Um, and I'm having a lot of fun just kind of tweaking and getting into the world of hi-fi itself, which, um, we could go on a whole nother discussion about, it's great to build the latest and greatest home theater, but if you can't get services that give you high fidelity content, it's a whole nother matter. So, um, certainly, um, most of the big video uh, streamers have a lot of Dolby Atmos content, which is quite frankly a game changer if you're just used to the standard 4K UHD. Um, it's a step up to really have the average amount of content you watch be in Atmos. Um, but music streaming services, like, holy cow, like, I want to crank services and lossless CD quality. And it's like, there's like, two providers that that do it that are mainstream and they don't do it on the apps and the hardware that are in the home theater and so it's on their kind of vendory devices and so Thanks, it's Apple. <laughs> yeah no ex- right. a classic example like they just yeah. released the um the apple music app for the lg WebOS platform which is like a huge deal yeah, we released everything, but oh yeah, that Dolby Atmos hi-fi uh, spatial audio thing that we do for our Apple hardware. Yeah, that's not in the LG WebOS app. So it's like, oh yeah, great guys. Thanks so much. Um, but if you buy that, you know, that little Apple TV puck and you put HDMI with eARC, yeah, we'll we'll make sure that that, that lossless spatial audio works just great for you. So, you know, those kind of things you're learning about as you kind of do it. Um, and that hostage. of course continues to feed the bottomless pit wallet that's required to do this stuff. Yeah. So. yeah they hold you hostage for sure. Yeah. So, well, okay. Don't give it all away. I'm sorry. Absolutely that's won't. that's a pre word, which we're teaser. considering that a teaser, a trailer. That's yeah. the trailer for the next episode that we have with Christian coming up. Mike, anything else you want to ask Christian before we let him go for the night? It's always, Oh, don't open, don't, don't, don't open up that Pandora's box. Yes. Uh, I have a bunch of questions, but I'll spare Christian the uh, next 10 hours of his life. <laughs> well, you can hear all my yeah, <clears throat> he is in Discord, so we can. Speaking of that, if you want to join us in the Discord group, there's a great way to do that. Head out to theaverageguy.tv/discord. Lots of great conversations going on over there. We'd love to have you part of it. 
again in two weeks. We're going to go to Discord for the post show on the 27th. So yep. if you want to join us that way, Christian, start looking at your calendar. We'll book you before we even get you off the show uh, tonight. We'll take a look at your calendar. Um, big thanks to Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting. You heard about it tonight from people that you know, and now you know them. What are you waiting for? I mean, everybody else's services are going up. $10, $10 a month for, and Christian, like, it's great stuff. Check it out. MapleGrovePartners.com. Love to see a couple of you make the jump. You've been, come on, you got a domain. You've been waiting to do something. 2022 is the year. Put on a Maple Grove Partners and let's uh, let's get this thing um, rolling for him. If you want to leave a message, if you got a if you got a message for us that you want to leave, you can call you can call us. Nobody calls anymore. Go to homegadgetgeeks.com. There's a little record button. You can just write from your phone, leave a message for us. 30 seconds, we'll play it here right on the show. You can always send me an email if you want to go old school. I, you know, I used to when I was a kid, I would dial the phone with the rotary. You know, I feel like email is the equivalent of the rotary dial thing. Like, it's just so bad. It's just so, but, but if you want to do it, uh, Jim at the average guy.tv, super easy. You can just send me an email. I love to get them. Uh, there's so, so many other great ways to communicate, but if you want to do it via email, you can do it that way as well. We are live every Thursday, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, out here at the average guy.tv live. Christian, you did HelloFresh. Do you guys stick with it or did you, uh, did you drop it? It's funny. I have this very interesting system for HelloFresh. So, yeah. like, we used it fairly amount, and then I switched it to the setting where it's like once a month schedule. Yep, yep. And then I like do this dice roll thing where it's like if I remember to block it, it's blocked. And if I don't, a box shows up in my door, and I'm like, babe, let's do HelloFresh. It's, it's kind of like, nice, isn't it? Uh, I just went to the grocery store, and it's like, it's oh. good. It's good. So yeah, you got to Got to plan a little bit. It's worked out fairly well, though, because almost all the times it's dice rolled has been when we're towards the end of like we do like one big like grocery shop. I know it sounds crazy, but like for the two of us, we can go grocery shop once and it covers like three or four weeks. And they've always kind of timed nicely towards being towards the end of that, where it's like you just need a little bit more to get to the next shop. So it's been a nice last mile thing. Um, And I've certainly learned a lot more about cooking by doing it. So, uh, yeah, oh, for sure. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, good. Um, well, if you want to take advantage of it, there's all kinds of free offers. TheAverageGuy.tv slash HelloFresh if you want to get that done. Christian, I got, a, I got a negative comment on YouTube just a couple days ago from maybe the last Cyber Frontiers episode uh-huh. you and I did together. And I think we must have talked about HelloFresh too much because somebody brought the comment was enough about HelloFresh. Wow. So, yeah, I was like, wow, I didn't, didn't really realize we talked about it that much. But... You know, we might have talked about, because I think I'd just been there and we've been, anyways. Uh, if you want to take advantage of it, you can do as well. We are live every Thursday, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, out here at theaverageguy.tv. We'll do a little bit of post-show since we got Christian. Can you hang out with us for a few minutes, Christian? I'll be here, no rush. We'll, we'll do a little bit of post-show as long as you can stay around. With that, we'll say goodbye.